Uh, welcome to the Ransom House podcast. I'm your host, James Ransom, and today I have with me a wealth manager and financial advisor. Jason Prattis is the president of Spry of Capital, and today we're just going to talk a little bit about um, exactly what financial planning and wealth management entails, uh, some of the basics, and we'll dive a little bit deeper into how the current market is affecting how people are investing. So this is Jason. Why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your background and what got you into financial planning. Sure. Thanks for having me, James. I appreciate it. Um, I basically started about 20 years ago when I was in college at SMU <clears throat> getting an economics degree. I was always interested in um, investing in businesses and the stock market. So when I would come home from college, I worked at a wealth management firm down in South Orange County. And so that interest kind of led to me uh, pursuing wealth management as soon as I got out of college. And it's Was that an internship you were doing at the time? Just yeah. something that kind of coincided with all the classes you were taking? It was a summer gig, right? Because that, that was here and college was in Texas. So yeah. Did you want to look for anything out in Texas? I'm sure, you know, Dallas and some of the other metropolitan areas have people with money where wealth managers are probably needed, right? Uh, definitely, definitely. A lot of people stayed out there, but I uh, I thought about it. But being having family here and growing up in Southern California, I was kind of eager to come back. It's not a bad place to live. <laughs> right. That's right. I always talk about um, moving away just because the cost of living here is so high. But if you do that, everybody I've ever known to do that has never been able to move back. It's That's just, true. It's like it's just too hard once you take your foot out of the door. Right, right. So um, you had your internship in college and then you graduate. What was the next step for you in financial planning? I basically got going right away. So it's been about 20 years and uh, started working with corporations on their retirement plans and then also individuals with managing their personal wealth. And uh, over the years, we just kept growing the business, um, you know, building our expertise up and adding people to the team. And, you know, here we are today. So you do management, not just for people personally, but for what, corporations or yeah, manage trusts or we do we do the four hundred one k plans for the corporation. So we help manage the the funds and the investments for all the employees' retirement money that would you know go into their four hundred one ks. Okay, so let let's go there for a little bit. Um, how do you even start approaching a company when you're trying to sell yourself on being the best person to run their four hundred one k plan? Well, you talk to the person in charge, which is generally the chief financial officer or the owner of the company, or it could be the director of human resources. And, uh, you know, you have an expertise in that area, which is kind of specialized with 401ks, knowing the rules and the regulations, but also showing them how you analyze the investments to make sure the investments you're offering the employees are, you know, top tier. Okay. And so is it kind of like real estate? I mean, I go up on a listing appointment. There's usually two or three other agents they're interviewing. Is that how your situation goes? Or do you build a little bit more of a relationship with the CFO and kind of just work with them from start to finish on maybe if, if you give your little presentation, they want a couple things tweaked. Do you just work with them on those changes? Or is it possible that they just go, you know what? Um, we're going to go with someone else who got a little bit closer to what we wanted to do in their presentation. Usually when what a CFO would switch out the advisor on the 401k plan, they're typically unhappy about something. It could be the funds that are in the plans. Yeah. And so they're, you're kind of catching them at that time where they're ready to make a change. And so sometimes they will, they will submit an RFP or evaluate two or three um, different advisors, kind of like a real estate agent. Okay. Other times you might be the only one. But. Yeah. Now, do you have a contract with these companies? When you're, you know, gearing up to put a lot of, I'm assuming, time and effort into making their plan. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Um, usually you will um, go without a contract, but you, once they go with you, you'll have a contract, which can be terminated at any time to manage the assets. But 
a lot of time you're showing them what you can do up front with the risk that, you know, they might not go with you. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, was that, you had your internship and then you, you said you've been doing this for about 20 years now. Now, have you always kind of been doing things on your own or is Sprive Capital something that's a little bit newer? When did you start the company? Uh, Sprive Capital started basically about four or five years ago. We had always, the team's always been together. Okay. Um, we worked at, you know, uh, banks back in the day or a big, some of the bigger financial firms. So you just met a couple people that you clicked with that were smart and, and you guys kind of all just grew together. Yeah, we, we did all kind of grow together. We added a couple people on the way and then along the way. And then eventually we wanted to be a little bit more independent and still have the security of a big financial organization um, holding the money. In our case, we use two. We use Charles Schwab or Interactive Brokers in okay. Connecticut. But we also wanted to have the ability to have the portfolios built completely custom. So we we built a team that has the highest credentials in the industry, which is the CFA is a really good one, the Chartered Financial Analyst. That's kind of the highest point you can get in finance and portfolio management. Right. I've had a few friends that I don't see them for months on end when they're studying for those exams. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that brings a lot of credibility. We have three of those on our team. And we wanted to be able to... Uh, build custom portfolios and, and really watch over the money, you know, on a day-to-day basis and pay attention to it because everyone's different with different timing. So it's, it's nice yeah. to be able to be custom. One thing's changed so fast now too. It's right. not like you just, you know, there's this old stock ticker <laughs> you put your money in. And by the time you get the news back, it's, I think, feel like that's finally happening with real estate a little bit as well. Right. It's like the information's just so readily available. It's not like, you know, you put your house on the market. It takes a while for everyone. Everyone sees everything so freaking fast. You have to have someone in there every single day. The technology. Yeah, I, th- I feel like that's probably a big advantage to you and that team is making sure someone's always there monitoring the markets. Definitely. So uh, how have things changed now? I, I know you know that we're going to start talking about coronavirus at some point, but uh, it's February. Things are great. 2020 is off to a good start. And then all of a sudden uh, we go on lockdown. I mm-hmm. forget if it was early March. I mean, it affected me big time. I have a lot of people that are business owners as clients. And all their businesses got shut down. The income stopped coming in. They can no longer qualify for a loan. And things changed pretty dramatically for me. So when you saw this coming on, I mean, what were your first thoughts? Do you guys have a little meeting and and start analyzing? Because there really haven't been a lot of times like this where it's happened to this extent. Right. So how how did you prepare for this? Well, we, um, you know, I started reading about the headlines of the coronavirus in, you know, in January and February. And um, we knew it was coming but when february 28th hit that was that was kind of the start of when it started to get pretty bad is that close enough yeah i'll just turn you up a tiny bit better yeah i'll I'll, I'll start from the okay question um we had been looking into the uh we had been getting news on the coronavirus in january and february coming out of china but it was kind of like bits of piece of inf- pieces yeah. of information so at that point You're just keeping an eye on it we were keeping an eye on it we weren't really sure about the seriousness of it as a lot of people weren't but when around february 28th it started to get very real like that that i think that was a that was either a sunday or a monday yeah. and at that point, um, around that time, the oil markets, uh, if you remember, China and Russia started getting in a, a feud over the price of oil. And that, with the news from the coronavirus, really made the stock market go down drastically. And from there, it kind of kept going down until March 23rd. And March 23rd, really, that was the bottom, but that was the fastest and quickest the market's ever gone down. 
in history or recent in, history? Yeah, I, I think in history, actually. Wow. In history, that was the fastest and most we've ever gone down. And um, that was really the only time that you've ever had a global shutdown of, of the economy where every single country in the world completely freezes. As you remember, we yeah. were on the, everyone was on lockdown at that point. At least it was like three or four weeks, right? No one was basically doing anything. They weren't going in the offices. They weren't going to the restaurants. Yep. And people were selling off the stock market and the equities as almost as fast as they could. They were basically trying to go in, into, into cash because no one really knew at that point what was going to happen. And that's what happens in the stock market. The stock market tends to overreact. And it's scary. It's because it, once it's that momentum scary. gets going, <laughs> it takes a you know a little bit. Right. A lot of like group willpower. It's I never understood why everyone I mean, I do, I get it. It's fear. It's fear. But uh, at the end of the day, it's like I mean, go back at any point in time over the last like forty years, doesn't it always kinda do this? Like even when we have those dips and it's even if it's a serious one, like I think we're finally back at least in real estate beyond where two thousand six was by a nice soft little margin there. Right, right. It, it does. If you look at the graphs, always tr- uh, tend to go up. The hard part is when you're in the middle of that at the bottom, it yeah. still feels very scary. And so you you might even know the history. Oh, it tends to always go up. But being able to buy or not sell during those times is still challenging because of the emotion with it. But, oh, yeah. you know, what happened was after March 23rd, we came out of lockdown and um, the people started to realize that, you know, there was a good chance that we could go back to normal. And as the science got better and we got closer to a vaccine um, and business started to reopen, the stock market started to go up. And until the end of this year, as we got closer and closer to a vaccine and uh, businesses started to lay off people, but um, the results came in and they were actually able to still make money in the middle of a pandemic, the market started to recover and said, well, maybe this isn't quite as bad as we thought it was towards the end of March. And now we are here today where, you know, we have two vaccines that have been approved at a 95% effectiveness. And uh, the last two weeks have been really good. So people are, uh, the market's finally starting to realize that some of these other companies, besides the stay at home technology stocks, they're able, they're going to be able to make it. And um, that's going to be probably the next spot that's going to continue to do well. But has it been those two sectors that have been driving the uptick in the market, technology and pharmaceuticals? Or where, where have you been placing people's money? Like when all this happened and everything kind of crashed and you hit that bottom, um, did you maneuver things or where, where did you reallocate? We, um, we thankfully we had a, a nice chunk of the portfolios and large cap growth and technology stocks, which has done very well this year. Think of any of the um, tech, big tech stocks, Peloton, oh, yeah. Apple, not that we had a lot of Peloton, but that's an example of one that's done well, but Apple, Amazon, right. any of those technology stocks have done well all year long because they've continued to make money. Um, we've also been interested in what I call the cyclical stocks or the, the COVID epicenter stocks. Those are the stocks that have more, more struggle during downturns or recessions. And we thought that was a good opportunity. So we kept a balance of kind of technology and the cyclicals, hoping that they would come back as we got closer to a vaccine. And that's really started to happen. The market's really realized in the last couple of weeks. Okay. So what do you mean when you say that, that they don't struggle as much on downturns or they do, but they then do. there's a lot higher of a ceiling? When things start rising again, is that what you mean by cyclical? Exactly. Okay. So think of any think of any business that struggles when there's a recession, and they and they do well when it's it, everything is going well. So they tend to go in cycles. Yeah. So when COVID was a, a big it's been a big recession this year actually, 
um, with with that activity going down in the economy. And so those cyclicals struggled. Think of a restaurant or um, a company that's you know that struggles with that um, lessening of activity. Yeah. Well, I, I just started thinking of like um, not luxury products, but things that you'd spend your additional money on. Hotels, hotels, r- vacations, things travel. like that. Okay, so that's right. Those th- are things in the right direction. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Now, um, so do you work primarily with companies? Uh, I know recently, and I hope to touch on this a little bit more in a second, but you work with a lot of athletes too. We do. We do. That's, that's a part of the business we really enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously ballers <laughs> kind of ballers did for you guys, what million dollar listing did for real estate agents, I think. And everyone comes <laughs> in with these different expectations of how it's supposed to be, but there is, I mean, they do touch on some of the actual fun stuff that right. we get to deal with. I'm sure you deal with a lot of personality. And it's, it must be nice to kind of switch it up from just the normal corporate mumbo jumbo. Right, right. So how do you get into, um, how'd you get into the athletic side of financial planning? We, you know, we just really decided to do it. We, we had a, a desire to work with football players initially because I love the sport and, and thought that we could really help out these guys. Yeah. And we, we really just decided to do it like you would start any other business and um, really just focused on it and spent a lot of attention on it. Thankfully, we already had the, the business in place from the 401k retirement plans and the regular high net worth individuals where yeah. that afforded us the ability to be able to, to spend some time to focus on athletics because it takes a long time. Yeah. But we really just started um, attacking it from all different aspects and just talking to many, as many people as we could. I mean, I think it's great. There's obviously a need there. I mean, it's, I mean, that's like the prototypical story you hear is like the millionaire quarterback or the millionaire pitcher, baseball player saw anything. Right. And then they're 40 and they're bankrupt and they had to sell their $4 million house. And Mike Tyson, I mean, I know MC Hammer's not an athlete, but I mean, he danced like one. Sure. And, uh, but all these guys that just made millions and millions, like, how does that even happen? Like, I can't wrap my head around it unless you start, like for me, it's like, unless you buy like a $10 million boat and you don't understand like the upkeep and the service and how much that costs yearly. And then also with properties like the taxes and the upkeep, the maintenance, right. the gardeners, the house cleaners. Right. That's the only thing I could ever really figure out. Is there more to it? Are there other reasons why people, you know, have $30 million and then go broke? I, I think the first two you mentioned are, are a big part of it. The, um, you know, the spending. Yeah. But also I think the other part of it is just um, getting into bad investments. So uh, it really helps to have a financial team by your side that what I would call just be like a double check on everything, including investments, right? Because any investment could be great or any investment could be bad. So, but when they get in, if athletes don't have help and they don't have a lot of experience and they get into the wrong investments and they end up losing a lot of money. And then on top of that, they're spending too much. That can be a a bad recipe. That's what a... Kawi Leonard, I think um, I always see this meme on Instagram floating around where he's still driving in this like 96 Suburban after signing like a three-figure contract. Right. And like, I'm just like, okay, guys like that probably do very well later in life. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And you know, when you're making that kind of money, you don't really have to do, although it's nice to do amazing things with your money, you don't have to do amazing things as long as you save the right amount. And you put them into the good investments that are you know not going to hurt you, not going to lose money on that will do well for you over time. When you're making that kind of money, you'll be fine. Yeah, it's where you try to make you know a lot of money quick, or you um, put it into risky stuff where you you, you want to make a huge return. Yeah. That kind of stuff can really hurt you because then you know whatever you put into <laughs> it can go to zero. Right, it's the high risk, high reward. But right. I think that the knowledge and the background behind a lot of those 
I mean, I feel like it's a lot of friends probably pitching ideas. Like, dude, I got this great idea for a clothing company. I just need a million bucks, and then we'll be out there, and I'll give you $10 million in two years. Right. And obviously, and a lot of them don't pan out. So you're the safety net that goes, okay, well, let me look at the financials. Let me see your business plan. Right. Let me make some projections here. And then you get back to your guy and go, dude, he's off his rocker. Don't do it. You're going to lose right. all your money in two months. Right, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, the athlete's in charge. He's the CEO of his organization. Yeah. We're the financial team. And I just like to say, look, let us you know, research it. Let us put together a, a report with all the data and let's discuss and we'll tell you what we think and look at the facts. And then at the end of the day, you can you can make that decision. But with, with our um, our research and putting together some interesting you know, data based on facts, you'll be able to make a much better decision. A lot of times, if you just do the research, the decision becomes a lot more clear on what's best to do. Okay. So when you're looking... Um you say someone comes up and, and they go, I have $500,000 and I need to diversify this and invest it. How do you approach that from the beginning? Well, we would definitely want to look at um, how much of that $500,000 they would need for the immediate uh, future. This is, is all residual. If they saved up 500000 and they come to you going, I need this to work harder for me. Right. But also in a, in a I want it to be safe too, like you, what you were talking about. Sure, sure, and and that's what everyone wants. They they always want to make money, but they want it to be safe. So as long as we knew what their you know their living expenses were, and, and let's just assume they had enough cash somewhere else to to fund their living expenses with that size of a portfolio with five hundred thousand dollars, you're looking at you know to get long term returns, you're looking at equities or going into publicly traded companies, the stock market. Um, bonds are okay too, but they're not going to make as much. They'll pay you right. some nice interest. Yeah, I have a couple of clients calling me looking for investment properties because they're just telling me the bond market is so horrible. I, right. I have guys getting less than 1% sure. on some exactly. of the smaller bonds and they're just like, it's pointless. And that's <laughs> a challenge. That's a challenge because bonds are traditionally safer, but you're not making any money. Right. So then where do you go? So and, if some, something's at less than 1%, I mean, technically you're kind of below appreciation. Like, are you actually losing money in the big picture? Right. You're if, below if inflation. You're at one per- yeah. So how yep. do you deal with stuff like that? And why do people still tend to drift towards that? Even well, in times like now. Right, right. I think it's because they are afraid of the risk of losing their principal or the money they put in. And if you go into a, a shorter term bond fund, you and that's that's very safe spot for your money. But yeah. like you said, you're gonna make less than, you know, around maybe one percent or two percent on a short term bond fund. Um but people like that security. So what we would do is if we were trying to actually get that portfolio to a spot where they could do well over time, you might start with say an allocation of you know twenty five percent into equities and seventy five percent into short term bonds, and you would take a little bit from the equities and put it I mean a little bit from the bonds and put it into the stocks over say a year period or a year and a half period. So you take a little bit every month and put it into the equity portion of the portfolio. So okay. you would take away some of maybe those events in the future that we don't know about that can hurt the the portfolio. You spread that over a year and a half to get in. I see. So you're now, you're almost kind of letting it ride. A yeah. little bit. You win a little bit, even though it's a very small percentage, but then you can take that as your residual. Your base is still there and you're using that for, I guess, a little bit more of the risky investments. Yeah. I mean, it's like a dollar cost average where you get in every a little bit every single month. You kind of bleed into the market. So you're, you're like reinvesting dividends almost. Reinvesting dividends, but also the money that you put into the safe area of the bonds, you would sell the bonds and put it into the stocks every month. Okay. So how does that work? Can you explain a little further? So so you have a short-term bond. How, how long is typically like a short-term bond? What's the average? Well, it would length? be full. It would be fully liquid. We would have it in a bond fund, so it's you could, it's totally liquid. And let's just say it's paying you two percent interest. Okay. So you put the bulk of the money over there, but then every month, 
say at a specified date or whenever, you sell a little bit from the short-term bonds, which is giving you the interest, and you take that month, those proceeds and invest it into the individual stocks or the funds and the equities. Now, is this taking away from what your initial investment was? Say we had that 500000 we put 400000 in the short-term bonds. Right. Do you always keep that at 400000 and only put the extra into the um, No, you would sell equities. off the 400000 Okay. You would start to sell off that 400000 and put it in the equity. So if you started out at... 400,000 and then 100,000 in the equities, you would start selling off from the bond fund portion and putting it so the 100,000 that is, was in the equities would grow over time. Now, does a lot of the reinvestment occur like while you're analyzing timing? Is that what you're hedging like that money against? Like making sure when you say short term, like year and a half. So is it only so you can see where the stability of the market's going? And then, you know, say you did it back in March and you just kind of weren't sure. Yeah. Six months into it, having right. it all liquid, you go, okay, the market's doing really well. We can take a couple more risks now. That's true. So right now, what I said is just kind of in general, but right now, the way we feel about the markets, we would probably speed up that process yeah. and put more into equity sooner because we still feel that there's a lot more to go in the market, especially and even in 2021. There's a lot of a lot of things in our favor. Yeah. But in general, if you were if you were kind of agnostic or weren't taking a position on the economy or the market, you would spread it over time because there's a statistic that they look at in, in finance. It's called the Sharp Ratio, and that's your risk-adjusted return. It's how much you made, but also what was the risk or the volatility. And it's always going to okay. be lower if you spread out the entry points into the equities because you're, you're going over at different points in time. I see. Okay. But we're, we're real positive right now, though. And uh, I mean, you, you get to analyze this. I know things move quickly, but will you start to see like the round off at the top of the point? And will, will it give you enough time? Like say something happens, 2021, we get a third wave. And now everybody's going on lockdown. You start getting fearful of what's going to happen to the world economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you then kind of take what you've put in equities and sell them back off and go back to something a little less risky, back into like short-term bonds to kind of get you through that time period? Or would you diversify some some other way? Well, that would be nice. That starts to get a little bit more difficult. When you're when you're trying to sell off before events happen, it's tough because the events can happen pretty quick. Yeah. So it, it's a lot easier to buy on the dips than it is to sell at the top. Right. And so we tend to not try to do that as much. We would rather be a little bit more conservative ahead of time or be in a position where we have some dry powder on the side in either cash or some bonds so that when we get these buying opportunities like we did this whole year basically, right, since the end of March, yeah. then we could shift it. But if you're trying to sell ahead of time, it makes it it makes it tougher. Not that you can't do it, but it is very difficult to do that. We um you know, we're actually in the middle of a third wave right now with COVID. Is this the third? Yeah, I would say this is the third in, in nationwide we're, we're in the third. Okay. With California, it's a little bit different cuz we we kind of really didn't have a second per se, but I would say nationwide we're in the third, but if you look at the seven-day delta, and just in the last week, the third wave is getting better. Can you explain what a, a delta is? The the change in the in the in the increase of the amount of cases in the last uh, week, okay. the day-to-day change in the amount of new COVID cases is actually starting to roll over a little bit. As okay. Even today on on um, today's date, if you look at it from a week ago today, so we're then the amount of new cases is, is growing slower. So we're starting to look like. Like the, might the table off a little, yeah, my table hopefully. off a little bit. Hopefully, as long as the Thanksgiving holiday doesn't uh, revert <laughs> us back, we'll see. Right, we'll see what happens. Right, I've seen a lot of pushback. Uh, our our dearest, lovely governor Newsom, who everyone seems to love so much, 
Right. So we'll see what happens. But I almost feel like there's a new group of people out there that's just going to defy him just because they hate him, even if it should be the right thing to do. Um, Absolutely. No you're, here, you're seeing a lot of that. Yeah. I, th- I know we had it here in Huntington Beach. Um, I think the night we did a, our small six people or less gathering at your house, mm-hmm. uh, there was people out at the pier on Main and PCH just blocking the intersection. They, everyone specifically made sure to come out at 10 o'clock when the curfew was supposed to be enforced. Mm-hmm. Just as like, hey, we're just going to break the rules to let you know that we're going to break your rules. Right. And right. I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I mean, I think we have a streak of independence in the city for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, we saw it when the BLM movement came here. I mean, all the locals just lined up and no one was the street. Mm-hmm. Everyone was just like, I'm sorry. Going to break our windows and loot things. We have too many business owners here. And I, it was really surprising. I know Huntington's always kind of been like a community like that. But that was the first piece of like factual evidence. It's like kind of knew everyone would band together and just try to, you know, it's growing a little bit, but we still have like that old school surf. If you were raised in Huntington, whether it's seventies, eighties or nineties, I feel like you just, there's those people, you know, forever mm-hmm. if you stay in the city mm-hmm. and it, it's a lot of them. Not a lot of people leave you know, after high school. I didn't, I mean, did you grow up here? I grew up in South Orange County. So in, were in you like a Capistrano, Capistrano beach? Okay. That's a nice area. Thank you. Yeah, all the way down south. Down there. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. A little more quiet. It is. Uh, that's usually why people will move down uh, San Clemente, Capistrano. Right. It's everyone just can't deal with the fast-paced hustle and bustle here, which I get. It gets exhausting sometimes. <laughs> but <laughs> it's kind of what you got to do if you have a certain goal in mind where you want to be at a certain place in life. Right. You can't just sit on the beach and chill all day every day. <laughs> no, it would be nice, though. <laughs> yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> Maybe someday. All right. We're going to start wrapping up here. Ran out of time. I would love to have you back just to kind of dive a little bit deeper. And now that I have a little bit of a base knowledge, I can probably come up with some other questions that might be helpful to some listeners. That sounds fun. Um, you Recently, I saw you started taking some actual like photos with your team. Mm-hmm. I saw it pop and I was like, Jason, the finance guy. Like, oh, I zoomed in. I was like, oh, shit. It's Jason. Jason. Uh, I know Instagram's probably not a huge thing for you. It sounds like a lot of relationship, but what, what's your handle? Is it Jason, the finance guy? Uh, Jason, the financial guy. Jason, the financial guy. So that's Instagram at Jason, the financial guy. And then what yes, company sir. website, anywhere else we can go find out a little bit more information about you and what you do. Sprive cap. Sorry. Sprive cap. Sprive cap. I gotcha. And that's a made up word, obviously, right? Yes. That just kind of means, okay. We had some, um, marketing firm in Denmark figure it out for us. It's kind of like, you know, hired them and they came up with like 25 names and then yeah. that was the one that kind of stuck out. So that's funny. Uh, my associate and I were showing an off market up in Naples and we ran into the guy who came up with Lexus. And he's like, yeah, total made up name. Like he actually used to do that job. Oh, that really? People in Denmark, they, <laughs> you get hired and you just come up with a bunch of different names. Some are real, some are a b- b- blend of words, I guess. Right. So it's kind of like what you did. I think. Right. Some things are better outsourced. Yeah. And it's nice too, because when someone goes and types it in, there's probably not a million hits that pop up of all the different names. That's a pre-existing word. Right. Right. So, I mean, smart for branding, but yeah. Anyway, thanks again for coming Thank on. You. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. And um, My again, pleasure. SpriveCapital.com if you want to find out more about Jason. or I mean, are you willing to take phone calls, emails, just to kind of help people out if they have questions for you? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a form on the website. They can um, put it in and we'll get back to them right away. Perfect. All right. We'll throw your Instagram and your website up on this. Uh, so if you want to visit them, write it down or just go type it in your web browser. I don't have to explain this shit anymore, right? Right. Internet's been around long enough. So anyway, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thanks again, Jason. And we'll talk to you guys next time.